My culture tells me that I have to treat everyone with kindness and that I have to honour each person I encounter in my day-to-day interactions. And I always say, like, Christians might wear a cross to remind them of their values. So too do I wear my hijab to remind me of my values and to remind me that I have to be my best possible self in any interaction I have with another human. What is it like growing up as a woman in Australia? What is it like growing up as an Arab in Australia? And what is it like growing up as a Muslim in Australia? I have no idea. Although I have daily contact with many women, have grown up with many ethnic Arabs, and have had a lot of contact with Muslim people, I still consider myself to be living in my own white male bubble. To be able to sit down and have a genuine, heartfelt, honest and open conversation about perspectives, political correctness, experiences and the power of language with someone so articulate, so intelligent and so inquisitive as my guest today, I cannot help but feel honoured. My guest today is Marwa. Marwa is a woman of colour and a Muslim. She feels that her very existence is political as people are, whether consciously or not, making judgments of her and her entire community simply by being. I have no idea what it feels like to be judged and have my identity and behaviour picked apart for simply existing. During the conversation today, I mentioned a podcast series that I had forgotten the name of. I highly recommend checking it out though. It is called Shut Up, a free speech investigation and is by comedian and writer Sammy Shah. I really enjoyed my conversation with Marwa today and to be able to have some of my own perspectives shifted, even slightly, can only be a good thing. I have no doubt you will enjoy it too. So without further delay, I bring you Marwa. Welcome, Marwa. Thank you for having me, Barney. So we're both in education. We work together. So that's how we know each other. But we only know each other through our workplace and through the occasional discussion. So my aim for today is to to get to know you and for us to have a great chat because I've always wanted to. Mm. And I've wanted to for many, many reasons. And one of the first reasons was... When you first started, I put you on the spot and asked you to give a presentation to a whole bunch of staff based on Indigenous Australians' language and the way we use language and the power of language. How did it feel entering a workplace and then realising that there was actually a lack of education on something so central to us or what should be so central to us, that there was a lack of that understanding in the education body and and what is actually going on. Okay, so I think the listener needs a bit of background on me first to understand really why you're asking me this question. So the listener obviously can't see that I'm very visibly different. And by that I mean I'm a woman of colour. I'm visibly part of another religion that's perhaps not the dominant religion if I can use that language in Australia or the the accepted religion in Australia a lot of western cultures and that's really that I'm Muslim and I'm visibly Muslim so for me to be asked to speak about Indigenous Australians as a woman of colour was a really interesting question for me and it's obviously a question that I jumped on and I was very willing to talk about However, I also, I've, I understood that I wasn't necessarily an insider 
to this issue. Even though I was a woman of colour, we are all very different. We come from different communities and I can't necessarily be the spokesperson for all these communities. So I knew that I could bring a knowledge rather than a perspective to the issue. So I wasn't necessarily the expert and I wanted to make that very clear, I think, to you when you asked me, even though I was sort of the one, I approached you. So you didn't really put me on the spot. Only in the sense to present. You encouraged. Yeah, encouraged. You did approach me and and that was amazing that you did that. And I have noticed a lot of that but probably didn't – I think you said you had a knowledge of it but not a perspective. I had the knowledge but I didn't have a perspective of how it may feel or why it was as important as it it obviously is. So I knew that the way that we use language – in our classrooms, the way that we use language with each other. And this is not to say that we've been using derogatory terms in any way. We're talking about using words that are antique or antiquated in a way. Why has the language of saying Aboriginal and Aboriginal alone no longer, well, the accepted way that we should say it, let me preface this. You did say it's from knowledge, not perspective. Yeah. So what is your understanding? We're maybe using your perspective on your own mm. culture and identity. That's a perspective I don't have, I guess, is what I was trying to get at. I don't have the perspective of someone that worries about the way that language is used mm-hmm. towards me. That I'm a, a an Italian, my parents are Sicilian, and they got called a wog in a derogatory manner. And now we've that's almost bandied around like a positive or we, we've come full circle and... and And maybe some people that's still a a derogatory term towards, but for a lot of Italians, they they call each other that in a a playful way and in a fun way, but it was used once upon a time, especially towards Italians in Australia, negatively. So that's the only real uh, perspective I bring and that's, that's very distant, whereas you'd come in and say this is may seem minor to you, but the way that we use language is super important. I know that through my perspective, I am unaware of the Indigenous perspective, but I do have knowledge that I can link in through my own experiences. So that's probably a better way to bring context to it. So what what is the power of language and why is it so powerful? I think what I wanted to highlight when I presented was the importance of acknowledging that there are there's difference between these groups. So what I really highlighted when I spoke was the importance of using an S. And it might seem so simple to some, but it's so important when you talk about minority groups. And it's an acknowledgement that not all people of colour are the same and we do have different experiences. So for example, I highlighted how we want to attach an S to people, which might seem quite foreign to some people and might seem an uncomfortable thing to say peoples instead of people so you'd say aboriginal and torres Strait Islander peoples indigenous australians so it's that acknowledgement that we are different and minorities are different there are differences amongst so what you're saying is there are differences amongst minority groups yeah so saying that i am Saying that you are an Aboriginal person is okay for them to uh, for an Aboriginal person to say, but 
we need to recognise and use language that shows that we are aware that there are many, many nations, cultures, faiths within the Indigenous and Torres Strait, uh, the Indigenous Australian landscape, and that is from the north to the southeast, to the west. It was all part of a people, and collectively, we've Australians tend to put lump them into the one category. However, these people that are so diverse, not only within Victoria with all the different language groups and, and cultural groups, but also within those nations themselves, there'd be the differences that, that we have in France or that we have in Melbourne or, or whatever. So to just say Aboriginal people and then we start talking about I'm from... Mexico, you're from, um, and I'm just talking about Sicily, a region of Italy. I have the power to be able to identify exactly where my background came from, while others not only had so much taken away, but even their ability to say that we are different from each other. So maybe that is where that power comes from. That's what I take from it. Mm. And that was something that I understand, but I would never have just thought about it enough to bring it up in in a context at a school and say... Let's, as a whole body, really change the way that we approach the way we use language. So you talked about plurality. Yeah. What There was other words there and other contexts that we use words that have a, a deep impact, a deeper meaning than we, we truly believe. Can you, I guess, educate us a little bit more on that? Well, I always, when I have these discussions and I have them with my little brother all the time who's also... He's a teenager and he's sort of discovering how to use language and how not to use language and what kind of language is now acceptable in our society. And it's this idea of political correctness, which a lot of people view negatively, political correctness, and it's used as a slur a lot of the time. It's gone mad. Yeah, political correctness <laughs> gone mad. But I, I think political correctness is a great thing because we are just picking up on the fact that there are a lot of things politically that we do have to correct and it's a necessary thing that we're doing. Whereas before people... Well, people believe now that we are correcting more than we did in the past and that's what's negative, political correctness gone mad. But I think in the past we weren't educated enough to know what we should be correcting and that's why we used to correct a lot less. Whereas now because we are having these discourses and these open dialogues, we're starting to pick up on how much of our language is actually problematic. And that is why there's so much political correctness now. It's because as a society we're becoming more educated and we're becoming more aware of others, non-dominant culture groups. So rather than the dominant culture, this fixation on this one perspective in society, which in Australia we might say that's a white perspective, now we are inviting others into the conversation and they're finally having an opportunity to point out what is problematic. They, they finally have a platform. They've been finally invited to the table, whereas before we didn't have that. And I think before you were talking about a particular word, which to the Italian community, to some it's acceptable, but to others it isn't acceptable. Now, obviously, I'm not part of that community, so I'm going to hesitate to actually I say the word. Yeah. So I'd rather not say the word. The W word. The W word. I think a lot of people will know what we're talking about. I did it with slipped off the tongue without even thinking that it may cause offence. 
to others. So there's still my bias as someone that is not offended by language because I've had the privilege of not having to be offended by language, just throwing it out there while we have a conversation about the power of language. And I'm not I'm not having to go at myself and I know you're no, not no, having to go at but me. I'll but I'll say that you are part of that community so you can take ownership of what in the past was historically a slur. Mm. You you can do that because you're part of that community. So I can't do that because I'm not part of the community. So people get to define the language that is acceptable if they're part of the community. I think that's what's really important. A lot of students will ask me about the N-word in America and why they can't say it and why they can't sing along to the N-word. And they fail to understand that language, that's what's so exciting as an English teacher. It's when you start going into the history of words and the fact that words didn't come out of nowhere, that there's a history attached to every single word and you can't, you can't annex a word from its history. So with the N-word, it has a history attached to it, even though your intention is good and you're not using it as a derogatory term. You can't annex the word from its history. However, the community that the word was used against can now take ownership of it. And it's a really powerful thing as a person of colour to be able to do that. It's a small victory, but it is a victory and they're able to do that. So that's how I always explain it to my students. Maybe not necessarily in that language and the discussion might be a little bit shorter because they have shorter attention spans. Mm. But I do emphasise that idea of history being attached to a word. There's a few things I want to touch on here and it's, it goes towards your entry into education and the reason you did that. And I will get back mm. to that. I want to. So ensure that you remind me. I'm sure we'll get around <laughs> to it. But a lot of people would say that if people are using a word in a song that is meant to be sung or is it uh, – I'm, I'm unsure mm. – I just remember seeing someone on stage, uh, a lady was brought up, I don't know, was it Jay-Z Z or... Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar brought up on stage and she sang along and actually used the N-word and was... I'm not sure what happened at the time, but... He stopped and he, he called her out. Called her out. Mm. So was that something that he did on purpose? Was it something that she should have known better? I, I, I wonder if... Well, first of all, the context is that it shouldn't be said by anyone that isn't of that community and I know that. But when someone goes up on stage asked to sing along to a song in front of everyone, is it actually okay to vilify, I guess, the person for using a word in a context that was celebrating the song and celebrating that artist? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion on that? So there's a perspective that since we live in an age of technology that ignorance is no longer acceptable. So I think the artist's intention there was he expected her to have access to that knowledge, really. And so do we forgive ignorance in this day and age? That's really the question when that knowledge is so freely circulated. I don't necessarily have the answer to that. Yeah, but it's an interesting – it's a really yeah. interesting point and I wouldn't have used that idea of the onus is on you. But I think it's difficult as an educator because – with the students we encounter, we can't expect them to know everything. And they obviously they come from a very certain community and they're so entrenched in that community and its values. And it's if I can say 
it's not necessarily the most diverse community. Mm. We have a community here which is very homogenous yep. in the way that it's very monotone. Yeah. So they're not necessarily having those discussions at home. Mm. However, they also, we know this as educators, how attached they are to their technology. And if they wanted to, they could access that knowledge. But we also want them to access knowledge about the work, their homework, but they'll be off watching YouTubers and things like that. So, you know, that, that expectation on, on students, we want to make sure there is a really high expectation, but we do know that there are challenges in not only that they do have access to technology, but what is that technology actually teaching them and showing yeah. them? And oftentimes it actually spread, sends the wrong message at, or a message that isn't overly insightful. Yeah. It's, it's whatever holds their attention for the longest. They're not accessing the m- most nuanced knowledge. No. So perhaps the, the question again is do we forgive their ignorance there because we know what they're accessing and the mm. fact that they're not accessing these debates, we can't really expect them to. They're teenagers. So I know that the woman that was put up on stage, she did appear quite young. So can we forgive someone for not having access knowledge in this age of technology? Do we hold that against them is the question. Yeah, and the, and the idea of forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean not educating along the way. You can mm-hmm. educate and ensure somebody knows why something is not right or why something is offensive or why something needs to be changed while also acknowledging that you may not have had access or you may not have wanted to access or known that you needed to access certain mm-hmm. information to teach you that. So the way I see it is that if I meet someone and I accidentally say he or she but mm-hmm. – they no longer want to be defined or, or labelled by that gender or a gender in general, if I get a response that's really aggressive, I'm much less likely to change than if I get a, res- a response that is, I'm actually would like to be known as this. You accept that and then it's up to me to accept and I have to then change in my, in my own ju- value system. It's up to me to then go, okay, now the onus is all on me. And I don't need an explanation about why that is necessarily. And that's the power of education, that explanation mm-hmm. for that person to then go away and maybe look at why. Why is the N-word not being used when kids ask it in classrooms? The curiosity is there because they're asking you. Mm. But then they've also got that have to go and actually look deeply into it and not just say, oh, some people said it's okay so I'm just going to continue. I'm going to take that little snippet of information that said it's okay to read. Uh, is it Huckleberry Finn or one of those old American texts where mm. the N-word is throughout and it's a character's name? Oh. And in America there's a debate going on right now about whether they continue to read that book as it was written or whether that word needs to be omitted. And it's a massive debate about, well, this book is a book about the problems of racism as well. It's not a a racist book, or it probably would be today. Uh, But at the time it was really trying to shine a light on issues of race and and, and struggles between race and class and things like that. So is that author... Not That author may not necessarily have to be told that they are wrong, but we now have 
the knowledge to say we have the, we have the choice mm. to be able to say we won't use that word yeah. even if it was harmless or meant to be harmless at the time. It isn't harmless anymore when we know that so let's stop that. Once we know that coal destroys our planet, we can stop using coal. Mm-hmm. It's not evil to use yeah. coal in the past. We didn't know what it was doing necessarily until about 1970. So anyone that used it before that can't be blamed for being a coal miner and and even coal miners today shouldn't be blamed because they're not they're just doing a job. But what I'm trying to say is the past is in the past and it doesn't mean we have to carry that forward into the future. I think it's what you do after you learn that something is wrong that defines you. It's what's your response once you actually get that knowledge. So before you didn't have that knowledge and perhaps we'll forgive you for it. But once you get that knowledge, what is your response? And I'm getting a weird sense of deja vu as you talk about this whole issue with the novel, which I haven't actually read about. But it reminds me of a situation that I had when I was in university. And on our text list, we had Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I went to a university that was one of the top universities in our state. And it was a very white university. So I was sitting in this literature class, this very white literature class, and they were debating whether Conrad was racist or not. And... I remember being so frustrated by this conversation and so frustrated by how forgiving, well, I perceived them to be forgiving of the author and and I was questioning why. And it's not until I later did my Master of Teaching and Joseph Conrad's book came up again that I realised why I was so frustrated and it goes back to what you were saying about our current values and whether we can attach our current values to a historical thing, whether it be a word or a text. And this idea of the canon that we have in literature, this literary canon that these books exist in and these are the honoured books and these are the books that we assign merit to. And Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness appears in that canon. And I realised that as we were talking about it in the English classroom, as in Masters of Teaching, learning to be an English teacher, I realised that I could judge it by my modern values because I learned of this idea of the canon and the canon is something that exists in our modern day. And so this idea of the literary canon and why we can no longer forgive racism in books that are in the canon, it's because because we've assigned them the status of a canonical piece of literature and we've said that it's a text that stands the test of time and it is a timeless text now and it is a text that is still relevant to our modern day, I can now attach my modern values to it. Because by giving it that label, this is the importance of labels and how labels can change words and things. By giving it that label, it becomes a timeless text. So I can, in 2020, assign it my modern values and and analyse it through my modern values and 2040 when those values change. Because if it stands the test of time, we're going to assume it's still relevant 2040. So my argument always was that Joseph Conrad is is racist, even though he didn't intend to be racist. Marwa, what got you into education? Well, I had a, I didn't have a linear path into education. I think I went into a field that my community expected me to go into 
and that was valued by my community. So I went into law first, which surprises a lot of my students <laughs> because lawyers make more than teachers and they ask, why aren't you a lawyer? So I actually finished my law degree and I think <laughs> in a way made my parents proud there. But I got to the end and I, I realised that I wasn't passionate about it. So I got into teaching because my two oldest sisters are actually teachers and the conversations that they had at home were exciting to me and excited me. So I wanted to go into that field that my big sister was in. And when I got into the field, I realised how little of me there was in the field, if that makes sense, um, and how little of my look was in that field. I know before I was talking to you about how my very existence is political and I say that a lot in terms of I'm very visibly the other and my existence is debated in political circles and that kind of thing. So I think for my students and we teach at a school that doesn't necessarily have a lot of difference in it and a lot of Australian schools are like our school. It's not uncommon. So it's good for them to even see difference and to be able to get used to there being difference in this wonderful diverse country we call Australia and I, I think one of my sort of mission statements is just to be visible and to be comfortable being visible in this space where I, I stick out so sorely. Being visible in a positive sense mm. and not sticking out and being visible in that negative sense yeah. as well. We're a podcast. So what makes you different? What makes you stand out, do you think, in terms of your appearance? What What is it for the, so listener, for the listener? For the listener. Yeah. Here's my rundown. So I'm a woman of colour and very visibly a woman of colour. So that's number one. So I'm a minority in every sense. I'm a woman. So gender-wise, I'm a minority. But I'm also visibly a Muslim in terms of I wear the Islamic head covering, which is called the hijab. So I'm very obviously something that isn't part of the dominant culture here in Australia. And the hijab is different from other Islamic coverings yes. by? Yes, and my students have asked me about this. And I, I love talking about it because, again, we're educators and I'm here to answer and educate the, them. So there's a hijab, which is just covering the hair. There's the burqa, which is what a lot of our politicians get wrong and what they call the hijab. So the burqa is a full face covering and that's not a very common covering, at least in my, in my life. And I don't know anyone who wears a burqa. So I think when people hear it talked about a lot on TV, they assume it's a very common Islamic covering when I've been to a lot of Islamic countries and it's very rare to see the burqa. So there's that. And then there's a niqab or the niqab which is covering of the head and covering of the face up until the eyes. But not including the eyes? Not including the eyes. The burqa eyes. is covering the eyes? Yes. And how would you pronounce those correctly? So there's a hijab. Yeah. There's the... I know in Arab... I mean in... To your understanding. Iraqi yeah. Arabic, yeah. which there are lots of different dialects, lots of different Arabic dialects. Um, and I don't necessarily understand all of them, which is what's so beautiful about Arabic. Yeah. It's, it's Even the language is so different. Um, in Iraqi Arabic, we call it abushiya, which is, does not sound like burqa at all. Mm. And then we have the niqab. Wow. Yeah. 
and that does sound beautiful as well. That I, I do often wonder how the differences of Arabic, because it is a language that covers such a diverse region and mm. people and population, or peoples again, peoples. Arabic peoples. Mm-hmm. Would that be the correct way to approach? Do Arabs believe that they are necessarily one in general, or are there lots of different people that identify that as their sort of meta group and they are well i think i, I want to point out that it's we call ourselves arab rather than arab. arabic so that's often something that i mm. see and it's it's common and i get why because the media also calls us arabic and not necessarily arab a lot of the time but arab is the word for our ethnic grouping and then you go to arabic which is our wording for our language grouping yeah. and then obviously there's ethnicity and that's what they're so that's what there's a lot of. Okay. There's a lot of ethnicities that speak the Arabic language mm. and identify as racially Arab. And we are so different because we cover such a large such a large geographic area in terms of we even branch into Africa, Egyptians, Libyans, um, Yemeni people, um, Algerian, Morocco. This is showing my, my geographic knowledge now. I'm just showing off. As well <laughs> as in the Middle East. Yeah. So – that as well, I think a lot of people, Africa is also this homogenized body, mm. isn't it? So, oh, you're from Africa, I hear a lot of the yeah. time. I, as a ge- geography teacher, <laughs> yeah. and trying to tell students that Africa is not a country, yeah. it's they think it's a continent and a country like Australia is. Yeah. But the amount of diversity within Africa, mm. without within every nation within Africa that wasn't even chosen, most of those nations weren't, the borders we're not chosen by yep. Africans themselves. So we can get – like that's another whole topic mm. in and of itself. But the fact is that there are so many nations within that it's just such a difficult concept for students to fully get their head around. But they can get it with Asia or they can get it with Europe. Well, they can get it with Australian. And when we talk about Australian accents, mm. and they're like, oh, no, means that's not how I, we say it down, you know, in our area – so they oh, know yeah. that even in Australia there's difference. Yeah. But yeah, I think they they struggle with the idea that the world is different a lot of the time. Is it the role of the media, do you think? I think the media plays a large role with how we homogenize certain groups and how stereotypes are being attached to certain groups. And we talked before how even when I come into a space, I assume that I will be viewed as a stereotype rather than, than as an individual, which I think maybe is my own cynical, my cynical. It's the cynic in me and I need to assume that people have the best intentions and that they will approach and and ask me questions. But even that was something we talked about before, how comfortable I am with people asking me questions and do I want them to ask me questions and do I feel othered? when they point out my differences or do I embrace it and think, wow, this is a great opportunity to educate and to have a conversation and to have a dialogue. And I'm still struggling with that. That's not something I have an answer to. In country towns, a lot of the time you have a very homogenous representation of people. You've got mostly Anglo people that are probably multiple generation in a country town that may have may all be of a similar education level, 
Everything. It's it's really – but then you've got a Chinese restaurant that pops up mm-hmm. and you get a Chinese family that works there. And then eventually you've got Bill and, and Deborah down the road that come into this Chinese restaurant and they see the Chinese person in that community actually becomes entrenched in the town and becomes a, a real member of that town simply by being there and being there long enough for people to then identify as, oh, really friendly person down the road that owns the Chinese restaurant, mm. cooks great foods, always really nice to us, and it entrenches that person into the neighbourhood and you're almost the icebreaker going into the, the North Sea the, for the first time during winter or something to break the ice and then allow others to, to perhaps come in because difference isn't a bad thing. Yeah. But that idea of being visible, when you say that, do you want to be visible as an individual without all the connotations that comes with what you wear or the colour of your skin or or do you want to be a visible member of the community that you're – well, you're on multiple communities but of that community and be a voice for others that are of colour, women of colour, Muslim people, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. When we talk about visibility, what are we trying to get to as such? I think when I talk about visibility, I talk about how I want to normalise people who look like me um, for us to stop stop sort of prodding me as an oddity and the fact that I do exist and that that's something that we shouldn't challenge or view as being out of the normal. So I think the more that these students see me being this normal presence in this small community that we have here the more I'm normalized to them and the more they won't stare when they see someone like me on public transport or in the shopping center and the more that they will move away from these small acts of casual racism which it happens to me on the train honestly at times when I go into public transport people won't sit next to me and even though the carriage might be full and the only available seat is next to me, I can see that hesitation and they won't sit next to me. So they'll choose to remain standing. They might stand right beside me and hold on to their life, but they'll choose not to sit next to me. And it's really because, well, one of the reasons is, well, they ha- I haven't been normalised to them. I'm immediately an oddity and they don't want to sit next to me. They don't want to be associated with the oddity or the other. So the more I can show my students me just participating in community life and the fact that I am normal, and I think that's quite sad even, the fact that I have to prove that I am normal, but it's understandable. I don't criticise them for it because I understand the community that they come from. But that's my mission statement. It's just to be visible, not necessarily to be questioned constantly, but to get them used to seeing difference and knowing that difference is okay and difference is normal. And should be celebrated. Should Absolutely. Should be celebrated. I have – that take is profound and, and really almost – it's heartbreaking in a way, in, in every way, especially the way that you see someone not sitting next to you. Mm. I asked if you wanted to have a lift home, but I was almost nervous asking that mm-hmm. based on, from probably not great sources of information – 
so let's go back to the train carriage. Can I sit next to this person and is she comfortable with me sitting there? Mm. So that's an intention that I didn't even think of. Uh, Are they hesitating because they want to respect me? Mm. And, and that, then yeah. they've got this this idea of what is acceptable and unacceptable to me. And perhaps that's what's causing them not to sit next to me. For me, if I, I would probably sit next to you. But if I didn't, mm -hmm. and you know me, that I would have no... It's not being an oddity or not wanting to be associated with associated with you. It would be the fact that I'm probably showing misguided respect towards you mm. or respect that isn't necessary, that it isn't actually respectful. I'm not taking – but for me it would be like I'll give this individual space because I'm not sure what co is culturally okay. But then questioning that is why it's so important for us to have more and more of these conversations. I, I'm here to learn mm. and to speak and discuss as well but just to find out so much more about – us. And then the fact that you may not have thought about it that way, you might next time be like, no, you can sit here if you like. And then that person sits and then you might get the wrong person that says, no, nah, I'm not doing that or whatever. Mm. But but it might be like, oh, thank you so much. And then you get a, a conversation starts and, and we start to build bridges where we don't – I don't even know why there is a gap in the first place, but it's somehow it's, it's appeared. Yeah, and we're tiptoeing around each other. Mm. I think that's what it is. We're unsure of how to act around each other because we haven't had those dialogues and those conversations. So another another example I can bring up is sometimes I don't notice this as much anymore. But when I go up with someone who's not from my community, as in my ethnic community, they'll bring it up. Like, why are people not looking at us? And it's because if I can draw on what you've said and the sort of new perspective that you've you've given me, it's we're tiptoeing around each other. We don't know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and we're too scared to ask. So maybe going back to before when I was saying, I'm not sure how I feel about people asking me that I need to be more open to viewing it as a positive. That conversation is necessary and this is how I, in my own little way, can bridge the gap to just being open to those conversations and Viewing those conversations as having good intentions, which is something culturally that is really big for for me, is in I'll, – I'll say in Iraqi culture because I don't want to say Arab culture when we've just talked about how different all these Arab communities are. We have this word called niya, and my grandmother always talks about that your niya is very important, that even if you've acted a certain way – that might go against our social rules, that we shouldn't immediately point the finger at them and say they've done the wrong thing. So what was their niya? What was their intention? So intention is really big in my culture. And I think sometimes I forget that and I forget to question their intentions and to try to view people's intentions positively. It's what's missing at the moment. Mm. We live in a society of outrage, I believe. I believe that from what I see at least that instantly something goes on and it's like, oh, how horrible are they? I can't believe those people would do that. And not necessarily race but it could be, you know, even things as severe and, and as almost black and white as someone that might be a murderer or something. I don't know. It's, it's an instant like throw them 
in jail, throw away the key, burn them, whatever. And you go, mm. is that violence necessary? Like, let's we want to eradicate violence. We're upset. We're so outraged by the violence, yet we're thinking violently in retaliation. And people don't even think about that. So let's talk about when we go to looking at good intentions, it's about having the best of intentions. And when you live that life of having the, oh, the best of intentions, then you can start assuming those best intentions. And I know that from our conversations, you do assume or you have the best of intentions. Have you experienced something that may make you fearful for assuming good intentions of people? Well, I think every person of colour has, I know before I talked about casual racism, but, and sort of casual racism is more subvert racism. So it's not in your face. But I think every person of colour has experienced that overt racism where it is in your face and it is obvious. And I've experienced that kind of violence. And I think I've then superimposed that fear that I felt in that moment to other interactions. So when someone doesn't want to sit next to me on a train, I remember a time where I was walking in the city with my sister and a group of younger men walked past and they shouted at us, take that thing off your head. Or I remember, and I'm not saying this as a way to sort of as a sob story. I'm just simply talking about my experiences. Absolutely, that's what... Yeah. yeah. Or I remember the time where um, we moved to a new school with my sisters and this was around the Twin Towers attack, around the time of the Twin Towers attack and we got called Osama Bin Laden. Um, and that's divorced from the fact that we don't even share the same gender as Osama Bin Laden. <laughs> But, yeah, so those instances of racism are what perhaps has ruined how I perceive people or how I have come to not assume the best intentions in a lot of instances. And whether that's – that is something that I'm still working against – the fact that I do have all these experiences and as humans we have experiences that colour how we will then perceive the world and that's something completely normal and that we understand psychologically. But I can recognise that perhaps that's what's ruined my perception of people's good intentions. Yeah, and that's understandable as well. That It's shocking and, and harmful and a lot of people would excuse... Perhaps those group of young men are saying, oh, they're just young men, whether they're drunk or having fun or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. they're just egging each other on and it didn't mean anything. But it does. It, the, the hurt that it can have and the long-term effects that it can have are there. And when we spoke about ignorance, there's nothing that can absolve that. Mm. That That is no story to tell that that's just ignorance. That That's harmful no matter what. And when we go back to political correctness, if you're told as, a, as an individual that something is offensive to someone or a group of people and we'd like 
to be referred to as this word Mm -hmm. or not as this word or whatever it may be, the onus is 100% on the person that is not listening to the other person. Political correctness, there was a great, maybe a six-part series on ABC and this whole series was amazing. It was talking about, you know, he's talked, oh, political correctness has gone mad. It has, hasn't it? And and he goes and delves deep into what that means. So what does political correctness originally, where does it stem from? What does it mean and, and how does it, how did the conversation become so anti-political correctness? And the thing is that what many people are sort of confused about is the word political correctness means simply to be understanding and respecting everyone. And that's all it means. Yet people have put it to this, you're forcing me to act in a certain manner. You're forcing me to lose my identity, whatever that might have been. And that is so false. But it seems that there is a serious fear and backlash at the moment about the status quo or whoever was privileged in that in that game of life that at that moment that are just really fighting back and that confuses me completely because as soon as I realize that I'm in a position of power or privilege I want to find equilibrium somewhere I want to be able to empower someone else or step off my platform for a little bit and say I've had the floor whatever but so many people, and that, I mean, I probably took a little bit of work for me to do that and realise when I'm doing that. But I, I really do find it difficult and tough to see people so resistant to that change. How, how do you perceive that? I was actually having this conversation with one of my students today who had found something that offended another student in my class. And they seemed to perceive that as being quite funny. And that is something that always frustrates me personally when I see in a group setting or not even doesn't have to be in a group setting where I see someone finding something that bothers someone else and they immediately find that funny and like someone else's pain or suffering. I mean, it's a smaller scale of pain and suffering, but it is still pain or suffering. Funny. And I stopped the student and I said to them, Enjoying other people's suffering is the lowest form of humanity, if it can even be considered humanity. And he stopped and he he took it. I could tell he took it to heart. And I can tell in that moment he was reflecting on what I said because he got really quiet. And I I won't say this is only an issue that I see amongst children because I see adults doing it as well. And we have the troll culture. And that's where troll culture comes from. Or that's one of the, that's what eggs trolls on, isn't it, really? When they find a sore spot and the fact that they can get a reaction, they want that reaction. And it's really sad to see someone doing that and finding that pain funny and entertaining I wonder, you said if it is humanity, but there is so much suffering in the world. There is so much pain. There is so much hurt. There are, and, and there are mostly 
people causing that pain upon others. So it has to be a human trait in some way. Do you believe that? That causing pain upon others is an inherently human trait or is it something we learn and we can unlearn? As humans, we're not perfect. And sometimes it's hard to control what you're doing. And we feel a lot of emotions as humans. And sometimes it's really difficult to control that emotion. Even I don't believe that they don't understand what they're doing is wrong. They know that what they're doing is wrong. But in that moment, it is what they need in that moment. As a human, if I can say that, it's either they've been told it's wrong or they've picked up it's wrong mid-conversation, but they don't want to back down because that's an ego thing and that's as humans, power to us is important and um, status in society and hierarchy, these all these social constructs we've created to organise our society. Even as students as, and as youth, they're already starting to participate in that game a little bit and they don't want to step down. So I believe that we can recognise when we are causing suffering, but we can't – it's difficult for us to stop. Why, why have we stopped caring about suffering even? Are, are we overexposed to suffering? Are the people who are suffering so different to us and we see difference as a negative? We can no longer see difference as simply a fact of human life, that we are all different and that's just an accepted fact, isn't it? Or it should be that Differences, I can't relate to you. If you're not similar to me, then I can't relate to you. I can't sit with you. I can't converse with you. Is it just really difficult to live day to day and try to hold back from dealing with your own suffering and maybe your own failings and your own issues that seeing a war in a distant nation or a strip of houses that look very different from your own in your own city even as foreign and not worthy of my time and attention because you haven't even given yourself that time and attention in many ways. I I hope that it isn't a complete – I really hope that we aren't just looking at the other as the other and saying they're not important because they're, they are another. I'm hoping that – the reason we struggle or many people struggle to have compassion or feel the correct emotions at certain acts, at certain moments of tremendous suffering that do exist, comes from that people are unable to deal with their own hurt, pain or suffering or struggles and they just ignore it or close it off because it's maybe too hard or they haven't learnt or due to conditioning, whatever it may be. I struggle with that concept a lot and I think my purpose with this conversation, not this exact conversation but the conversations that I have all the time is to open myself up to asking questions rather than putting judgments upon people and I've always put judgments upon people that how can you vote that way when you know what goes on and if you don't know, you're either dumb or you're horrible. That's how I used to view the word, the world, when people made bad decisions or decisions I didn't agree with. And now I, I really go, I just want to understand where does that come from? When I look at someone that 
watches the news and, and quickly turns it off and puts a reality TV show on. Are they bad or are they a product of the environment or are they hiding from something? Oh, I'm, I'm asking. Oh, not even asking. I'm just probing these topics myself. But it is horrible. It's heartbreaking when real things that require urgency and attention and compassion and empathy are ignored. And now that I'm thinking of this, I look at the bushfires in Australia and think every single Australian felt empathy and compassion and hurt and were crying and keeping it glued, their eyes glued on those programs, which is great that we had that outpouring of grief and, and money and everything that came along with it. So it is possible. I've just answered my own question. It is possible. People are doing it. So that idea of the other, I was just trying to maybe think of it. No, but the the idea of the other must have something to do with it. It's tribalism maybe or or something. I know that Toni Morrison, who is an author I love and unfortunately she's passed recently, she talks of this idea of collective suffering and cultural mourning. So our suffering is one of those things that we do collectively and you take comfort when it is collective. So that's immediately what came to mind when you were talking about that. Do you think that funerals and, and funeral traditions and rituals come from that? That, that we do need communal suffering and, and togetherness to, to be able to get through grief together? Absolutely, yeah. And we carry traumas sort of through the generations. It's not contained to one generation and, well, Toni Morrison talks about collective suffering and cultural mourning in terms of slavery. She's an African-American woman and she, it is sort of her rebuttal to people who say, well, slavery was so long ago and why, why should we care? Why should the government be asked to compensate those who suffered, who, whose families suffered in the slave trade? And she talks about the fact that we do carry our traumas through history and through generations and that our psyche, we have a collective psyche, which I find a very comforting idea. The fact that we are all linked intrinsically, even though we don't know how we're linked and we can't necessarily articulate it and we aren't aware that we're linked, but intrinsically we're all linked, that we do carry our traumas as a community and even if we didn't experience that firsthand, it is something that has now been entrenched into the collective psyche. And if I can bring that to a more domestic issue and returning to an earlier topic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, why sorry is so important to them and why they're still, why we can or why we should. And when I say we, I mean the we that is Australia. I don't personally mean we as individuals, they asked for the government to say sorry. And it is because they've carried, it's a collective trauma. And it, even for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, it isn't so historical for them. Mm. That they are still, people who were affected by the stolen generation are still with us. So it wasn't so long ago in history that as families, they sit and they they share these stories with their families and the, to the newer generations coming up. So this collective suffering or understanding of the historical suffering 
is passed on from generation to generation. So that's comforting to me. Um, if suffering can be comforting, the fact that we do participate in it collectively and we can connect even just through our suffering, which isn't the most positive thing, but we do carry, we all carry the same burdens. We all carry the same traumas through generations. So even though I didn't know my my grandfather who passed before I got to know him, that his story is still, it's a familial story and it's an ancestral story. So I can, I'm connected to who came before me and who sits beside me. So in, in and going back to culturally, what an idea we have culturally is we call everyone brother or sister. And it's the idea that we are all from the same seed, if you will. And there is that link, that humanity, we are all linked intrinsically and biologically and we all came from the same place. And there is lots of theories that that also endorse or are in line with this thinking, like the out of Africa theory. And that's comforting to me, the idea that we're intrinsically, I might not understand the brother who was sitting next to me on the train or the sister that I encounter in the classroom, but intrinsically we're, we are one. And I know that sounds like a line or it sounds corny, but even just knowing that biologically we're all linked, even though we don't necessarily understand each other, is really comforting. It's comforting and necessary, it's necessary. to unite as a planet. We are now one economically and with the media and we're able to send a text to any part of the world at any time with satellites. So we've got the technology, we've got the knowledge, but we've in a way lost that connection, I feel. We've lost that ability to see that we are one, that we should care for each other, that we we need to worry about what's happening on the other side of the world, not because the news tells us to and necessarily in a political manner, you know, let's get in there and, and win this war or, or something like that, but more about these people are people just like me mm. and these people suffer just like me or just like I could mm. and that there's often times, oh, let's just blow the place up and get it over with and, you know, mm. and it will all end, you know, they can't figure it out. But ugh, I guess it takes so much knowledge of history but then it's also goes back to just understanding people, that people are people no matter where you go and there's beauty in everyone or in every culture and then there's bad people and bad actors amongst everyone no matter who you are and, and where you go. You said that idea of, yeah, brother and sister and that is lost, I feel, amongst so many groups, not only minorities but even in big urban centres where you you may not know anyone that lives within 20 k's of you, that you see a different person at the shops every time and that's you don't even have a connection with the country town does with the Chinese takeaway owner. Mm. That's a connection that you can make because it's the same person every week and you eventually get there but in an urban location you, you very rarely have that option. And if you don't have a community that stays strong and you're still grieving or you're still holding on to something, a trauma, where do you go? And Indigenous Australians have been so displaced, so separated from them, each other, from their land, 
and then they're told, yeah, you're from the Kimberleys, but there's a job in Perth waiting for you. You can work with 30 other people that are going to give you a good wage, but those 30 other people are people that don't understand the connections that, well, they might understand connections, but those connections are, if I live in Melbourne, I've got my connections around me, but if I've moved across country out of my my own spiritual home, out of my own nurturing environment that my family and my people give me, it's impossible to just expect everyone to up and, and join into this modern urban environment. And and it just made me think of that, which I, I do think of at times. And I, I spent time in the Kimberleys late last year. I actually got to go with school and I got to spend a week or a, a school week with a a really small community up in the Kimberleys, Aboriginal community. And it was the most one of the most life changing events I've ever had or or moments, times, experiences that I've ever had, but also not only life changing, but just perspective shifting. It was it was amazing. It really was beautiful. Not only in the way that I connect with now with my students, uh, that was a, a, another product of it and the product that I initially went thinking, I'll be able to connect with students, I'll be able to connect with other teachers, but I connected with people that I had only seen maybe on TV once a year or people that are truly living on the land that was traditionally theirs with their families together without any with very little connection to modern Australia or or, or limited, the school was, there was a health centre and things. But to go there and to see these people that were the most friendly, welcoming, an interesting story is that you go into the school, instantly the kids just jump on you. You know, these kids are all over you, they're jumping on you and they say, you know, don't encourage them to, we want them to be learning, so don't, let them jump all over you, but you can't stop it because they keep doing it and, and they're on you and then you play some footy, you run around, you're doing all this amazing stuff with them. And then the, the mums or the aunties or the sisters come in and then they say and they wave from a bit of distance. And But then you wonder, where are the men? Where are the, the adult men? Or the, and the teenagers go off to boarding school mostly. So you don't see many teenage year, uh, people in their teenage years. But the adult men you very rarely see and... We went out to the footy oval and the adult men are on the other side playing football, playing footy. And one of the kids runs over and says, before this happened, I was just like, oh, I won't necessarily go over there because of my own, of people warning me when before I went that were from Broome. Like, and Aboriginal would be like, be careful over in the communities. And I said, what? All right. Oh, all right. So in my mind, I had that. And the boy, one of the boys ran over, young primary school aged and said oh the men are too shy to, to ask but do you want to play footy with them <laughs> and I thought that's amazing like they're, they're, it's shyness that the distance it's about that shyness I was thinking it was don't encroach on my my patch or don't get on my turf but it was the opposite it was we desperately would love you to play with us but we're too shy to ask you which mm. I would never have thought and we went and we had the best time we played for a couple of hours running around they were so good 
but they let us think we were good. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> they were much better. But as soon as they had the opportunity to tackle us into the ground, they, you know, let us go. And, and it was just fun. And then from then on, I got a nickname, Big, Big Fella. Mm. And that from then, that moment around town, Big Fella, Big Fella was that moment for these men to feel like they can come out and say hello and not feel like they're hiding and ashamed <laughs> because they're not working or they're not doing what they feel would give them value. And that's so sad that they feel that way, that they feel that they their only thing is to play footy at when the sun starts to go down and then obviously have their moments to connect and I had chats with people about this, like some of the elders that said this to me. This is not my assumption. This was what I was hearing from some of the, the couple of the elders that we feel like we, even though we are here, we've lost our way. We rely on the mining money and we're living still, I assumed, in a traditional way. But they're so influenced by external factors still that they're unable to necessarily live the practices and live the way and live the faith and live every way that they once had. And that that was so sad. But I guess the, the, the positive out of this was that when we were leaving, the whole town was there and everyone was in tears. Every single man, woman and child were giving each other hugs. And it was this moment of like, we just had five days together, four days together. And, and there wasn't a dry eye anywhere. And you had like... Old lady that was blind and asked for me to come over, and just she just wanted to give me a hug because she heard a speech, you know, the way I spoke. And then it was like, I'm going to break down with this happening, you know. I'm trying to be strong for the students or whatever. And I probably I spoke about this on the last podcast actually about my inability to cry or about my, and I say it's an inability, but it's it's just a, a vulnerability that I'm unwilling to open up. But I think I will. <laughs> But, yeah, th- these moments were so fantastic and, and the kids were crying for about four hours after and then the next morning, but in with joy that we were able to connect to people that we never knew, any th- never knew more than what we'd seen in the media or what we'd been told. And I think, and they all had brother and sister. And my idea was that they had that with themselves, but they instantly started calling us you know, brother and sister. And these are the people that are now living a life where they're not able to live the way they truly want to and they're unable to due to me in a way, due to all the privileges that I have, yet they're still so welcoming and so accepting and so loving. And if we can't look at that and then do the same and turn around in the same way as a society, we're failing. So to go back to what you're talking about when you look at a book and that book, you have it now a choice to make to whether to stick with it and to treat it as a gospel truth for Western civilization or whether to say, no, do you know what? We're going to change our story and change our path because we know better. And if we can't do that, we're failing in my opinion. So thank you for triggering that imagery in me to to be able to tell that story because it's something that I I forget often to just reflect on that moment. Well, it sounds like an incredible experience, an experience I'm jealous of and I would love to one day also have a similar experience to you. 
But I think what's really beautiful about me listening as you're telling me this incredible, profound moment is I can't help but think that the idea of intention and the fact that you went in it, oh, you went into the experience with such good intentions and you went in to gain some knowledge about the community. And as an educator, that's really powerful. When you gain knowledge, you can pass on knowledge. And I always, and not to lessen your experience because it's incredible, but how we approach marginalised communities is so important and our intentions when we approach them and what we are trying to gain from our interaction with the community is so important. Are we trying to gain knowledge and are we trying to give them a platform and to hear their story, which I believe that's that was your intention when you went in, or are we trying to are we trying to get something out of that experience and are we only thinking of ourselves? But I always hesitate when I see people approaching marginalised communities and question their intentions. Are they doing it for themselves? And it's the idea of altruism mm. and how we are approaching people in our day-to-day lives and are we approaching it to get something out for us and are we appropriating their experience? for ourselves or are we actually going in to honour that community and give them a platform and to hear their stories and it sounds to me that you were part of that group that went into the experience with the best of intentions and you weren't doing it for you in the way that you weren't doing it to sort of appropriate their poverty or their different way of living to learn more about yourself which naturally you will Mm when you have these experiences, you will learn something about yourself. But whether that's your primary intention or are you actually honour honouring them as humans and you're there to genuinely genuinely see what their way of life is about and to bring that knowledge with you is what I find really important about the interactions we have with marginalised communities and voices. Even the way that the school went about actually going, it was someone that had been involved teaching in the Kimberleys before and had known community members but this wasn't yeah the way that it worked and I was sort of worried about it too was are we a group of privileged people entering into a very underprivileged at least materially but in many ways Mm. an environment that we can look at feel good about ourselves that yeah. we've you know sent over some pencils and cooked a barbecue right and then we go back home and we say well, look what a deed what a great deed we've done and for me I didn't feel I feel they did me a deed in that sense that I hope that the people that I connected with took something away that was positive and I and I believe that everyone I did said that they did but I went there to to learn mm. and to bridge to well I didn't go necessarily with the intention of bridging a gap because I didn't think of it like that it was more I want to learn I want to give my students an opportunity to to get an authentic real experience of an Australia we don't see and for them to be able to come back and and share that knowledge and also and their experiences but then also when someone does say something that is racist or subtly racist or has an opinion about our 
the First Nations people to that is negative to actually stand up and say, hey, I've have you ever met anyone that is an Indigenous Australian? Have you met someone that has talked about their feelings and their country and their their beliefs and their the way that they perceive themselves now have have you done that and if you haven't you have no right to say what you're saying and and the kids now are in constant contact and communication with the kids over there and like pen pals and things not pen pals i don't know if they write <laughs> to each other but they type to each other and and facetime each other and all that but um yeah for me it was giving that but then i've just got so much out of it that wasn't about me it's now about what I can do with that knowledge yeah. and that information. But it, it, there is always that danger of going somewhere and saying, look at what we've done. We raised this amount of money. We can claim it on tax and we can, yeah. uh, you know, put it on our bio so that we get more. Uh, we, we have an ability to say we did that. This was done in the correct manner yeah. from the people that organised it. And I just happened to go along this time. But what I take from it and hopefully get to go in the future in a more leadership role will definitely look to continue to bridge those divides and to give our students an opportunity to then to become better people because of those experiences. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Yeah. And it really it's a way of inviting those voices into our classroom. We can't necessarily invite them physically into our classroom, but we can bring their experiences with us, which is our curriculum is sadly lacking. Mm that Aboriginal perspective and Aboriginal knowledge. I mean, we do have it. In it's our written curriculum. in there, isn't it? It is. But it's, it's, it's very rarely done well yeah. or correctly. It's something to tick off. It is in there. And they've been quite good about the language they've used in some instances. In some instances, we still have room to criticise it. They've been good about using the plurals, the beliefs, cultures, histories, Aboriginal Trust Right Under peoples. That's all there. In terms of actually putting it into specific curriculums or curriculars is what's lacking. So in the humanities curriculum, we don't have that direction as teachers or that explicit direction that you have to teach this, this, this a lot of the time. Or when they're framed, they're framed in terms of, I know in the um, seven to eight curriculum for humanities, we talk about ancient Australia and for a lot of our year sevens and eights, that's how they begin framing Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples in terms of them being associated with ancient and that they are no longer an existing community. It is no longer present tense, it's past tense. So it's really important that we allow them to have a platform and to bring their voices into the classroom so that for a lot of our students who don't have a geographical connection with them in terms of there's not we don't have the biggest presence of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our community. That it's important that we try to get them into the classroom any way we can. And I felt like that's why I was really excited about the expedition. In terms of I thought, wow, that's that's such a big opportunity we have there to get more of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into our classroom and to make them more visible and to normalise them, which is what we were talking about before, how important it is for them to be in the everyday classroom and rather than just the historic classroom, the ancient Australia topics that we explore. And also not to speak on their behalf but to invite them to speak Absolutely. as well and to have uh, the voice 
coming directly from yeah. people that are of that um, community group and that group. Do you feel sometimes that there is a, and we've discussed this a little bit, but that onus is on you as well then to represent your background and, and group? Yeah. And that look, that can be, it's difficult. You don't want to invite the different student to become the oracle for the community because like we discussed, there's no way that they can do that because we are so different even within my communities, Arab community, etc. So I can't expect that anyone will be able to represent their community fully and to put that burden on their shoulders. So I always hesitate to point out differences in my classroom. For my students, see this is interesting because how I view myself versus what I want for my for my students is different. I'm coming to realize in terms of I don't want to ever highlight their differences and to point them out unless they point it out themselves. And it's really about giving them a choice. So a lot of times these communities, that's what they struggle with, the fact that they feel like they don't have choices. So if I can give them that choice to actually step up and, and speak for their community, I find that so powerful. And I'll always wait for them to speak before I ever point out their difference. It's the idea of ownership, really, and being able to define yourself any way you choose and being able to decide what your identity is and how you'll be defined, whether you're transgender, of a different race, of a different linguistic background and all the different differences we find in our classrooms. It's ownership for communities that a lot of times feel like they don't have ownership and they don't have control over their narrative because the media is pushing a certain narrative and suddenly the media is talking for you and the media is defining you and you become a stereotype. So I want to invite my students to be able to define themselves because I feel like that's powerful because I know that to some extent that's been taken from them. Marwa, you talked about culture being super important to you and, and guiding you in many ways. How does culture and faith guide you and does it guide you in your life in a day-to-day level or is it more of a, a background noise? Yeah, tell, tell me. Okay, so <laughs> Barney would have just seen me gesturing at my hijab, which is my head covering. Before we were recording, we were talking about how I perceive my hijab and how I've chosen to understand my hijab. And I have this conversation probably weekly with someone I encounter in the community or a student and they question, Miss, why are you wearing, they don't necessarily know the name for it, but why are you wearing that on your head? Why are you wearing your scarf? Which is what it's commonly known as. And I always say to them, my scarf is really to me, or my hijab, is a reminder of my values. And my values are culturally, are to honour each person. My culture tells me that I have to treat everyone with kindness and that I have to honour each person I encounter in my day-to-day interactions. And 
I always say like Christians might wear a cross to remind them of their values. So too do I wear my hijab to remind me of my values and to remind me that I have to be my best possible self in any interaction I have with another human. So oftentimes while faith a lot of the times is viewed as something very personal, my hijab is isn't just personal but it tells me how I interact with others and how I bring not bring others into my religion but how I how they will encounter my religion because I then become a representative of my religion and its values so I'm always really conscious in my day-to-day how I'm treating others and whether I'm being my kindest self to them so even in my day-to-day that's something culture is always with me because I, I carry its reminder with me and it's not a burden it's not oppressive but it's a really positive thing and it's a really positive presence in my life and that's why I I choose an emphasis on choose to wear this hijab because to me it reminds me to be a better person and that's all we can want mm. better people and people to act or to behave to live out their best self i think a lot of people would say they're good or they say say that they are a positive influence and then forget it for most of the day and Mm. yell at someone you know beep someone in traffic or what you know whatever it might be we get caught up in this this urban you know modern rat race in a way so you mentioned your hijab being a reminder mm. if you were living in us in an area that it was not different mm. would you feel that you are still representing your culture and faith as much and and would that change your behavior is being a minority almost forcing you to check yourself a little bit more or is it that you you just see it whenever you look in the mirror, you look down and, and or you you remember you feel a you feel the hijab on you. Like is it the is it the clothing? Is it the minority? Is it a bit of both? What in, in this context for you? What a fantastic question that I don't think I've considered before. I'll say that the I act like I'm a perfect human and that I I do succeed with that mission of being the kindest that I can and the best possible version of myself day to day using this hijab. However, that's not necessarily always the truth. I am after all human and no human is a perfect human. So I'll say even in a setting where I'm not the different, I am not the other, I think we forget that I'm not the religion. Even though I represent the religion, I'm a human practicing the religion and as humans we we err and we make mistakes and we are not perfect and we also have choice and we make our own choices I choose what I want to take from my religion and my culture so even when I'm existing in a space where I'm no longer the difference I think how every person who's wearing the hijab will act is different because we are humans practicing a religion and I think that's what I struggle with a lot when I'm represented in the media and I'm lumped as this label of Muslims and all Muslims are the same and they all think like this and 
all this other waffle that goes on in the media, I always think, do you not recognize that I am not Islam? Which is what always makes me laugh when someone calls me my religion. They say, I, are you Islam? Are you Islamist? Or are you Islamic? <laughs> so I say, are you Christianity to them? So I'm not my religion. I am a Muslim, which is a person practicing a religion. I think that's really important to remember that we are, we are not all the same and how we choose to practice our religion differs wildly on how my small Iraqi community chooses to practice or my small Muslim Iraqi. I, I want to emphasize Muslim Iraqi since there are so many religions and, and races even in Iraq how we choose to practice our religion is different to another Iraqi community within the same state. And I think that's what we've been talking about this entire conversation. We've been emphasising how important it is to approach everyone as an individual and rather than as a label or as a stereotype. And I think even with the hijab in a space where everyone is wearing it, it means something different to everyone else. So I would still get just as much out of it and perhaps the same or it would serve the same reminders that it does for me now in this space and as it would in a space where a lot more people are wearing it. Would you say you would have been or had a progressive sort of upbringing or did you seek out change? Like I'm just trying to mm. – I know that you have so many progressive sort of values or what I would consider progressive mm. values or what the media considers progressive values – does that sometimes clash with a generational conservatism that may or may not be there? I don't know your story and the mm. background of your family and peers and community groups, but do you ever feel that clash or did you have to break free a little bit in some way to then find yourself and came back? I'm, I'm just wondering on your little journey and your experiences along the way. I'll say I think it's a human experience that we will always clash with a generation above us. And I don't think it's contained to my culture or my religion. It's not an issue that just my culture experiences. So I will say yes, that, and it's not by virtue of me practicing a certain religion or a certain culture, being part of a certain culture. It's by virtue of me being from a generation that differs to the generation of my parents. So whether I attach it to culture and religion, what I'm saying is what I wouldn't do. But I'll say yes. But I'll also say that my my parents were really good at encouraging individuality and encouraging free thought. After all, they raised three teachers. I have three teachers in my family in terms of myself and my two older siblings. So if we were not encouraged to think for ourselves, that never would have happened and my parents were quite good at doing that and allowing that. But again, I think what I want to emphasize there is whether, and I like how you said you are progressive and you stopped there. You didn't say you are a progressive Muslim as if there was a mismatch between the two and as if that was a label that needed to be attached to Muslim to explain what kind of Muslim I was. You simply said progressive and I, I thank you for that. No worries, but the fact that I had to even ask it yeah. may have maybe is labelling in a way, you know, that... But we uh, did have that conversation before, as in you've obviously said you're Italian, you're white, 
but we had that conversation before um just personally about how your parents also view you and there is a there's a clash between yourself and their values or your values and their values because they come from a different generation so I don't necessarily think that you are othering me at all but it's a conversation that a lot of us have as in from this generation whether it be millennials or generation x and our clash between us and the baby boomers but yeah there is always going to be a generational gap that's not linked to religion or culture yeah, I a hundred percent the 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 clash that I guess I've had probably my grandparents' generation was more the the religious side, or at least for me, my parents aren't overly religious, or my dad's not at all, uh, and he's not traditional at all in any way. I guess the clash comes from work ethic or something, or or you know you live to to work, you know you live to do the right thing by others, and you do your job and you do it well, and and that's what's important, and you and you save your money. You save your pennies and you – it was more on that level with with him especially. And, and you know, you watch out what you're doing. You don't frivolously spend or, or just have luxuries for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And then I go out for breakfast and spend 20 bucks and he's like, I'm going to meet you after breakfast because I don't want to spend $20 <laughs> when I can spend $2 at home for something that tastes better and mm-hmm. whatever. And – and I'm starting to actually go back and and after challenging that for a while, realise, yeah, you know what, yeah. there's there's beauty in cooking and, and spending time with people in your own space and, and saving that money and using that time together, maybe for to not just be served, but to, to, to serve as well, especially if you're hosting or whatever. So that's where that came from and, and there's there's lots to be seen from that and then more my yeah, my mum's side of clashing comes from yeah that I want to continually get better and she sees that as a like you never sit still you never just relax you don't just sit down you're always moving you're always thinking you're always trying to do something yeah, new and different settle down get married yeah children. yeah a little bit like yeah, that that yeah. side of things and and not in a in a major way I know there's a lot of people that would actually receive that in a way that it is a burden on them. Mine's just a little clash. Just, mum, I'm yeah. going to do my own thing. Whereas I've got the luxury to do that, whereas some people don't. But the fact is that there is that clash of expectations. So, and certain values that I am much more progressive about than my parents or aunties and uncles and grandparents or whatever that I just say, have you thought about why, just even thinking about why you do something and you've clearly explained in a way that is really profound why you represent yourself in a way and, and wear what you wear and and in a way that people need to listen to and hear because it's just always explained for you. Mm. We were speaking a little bit earlier about the way sometimes you can be lumped into a category that you aren't necessarily, this was off air, a category that you may not represent yourself and yeah you don't identify as a certain category can you tell me that story again a little bit okay so i was telling the story of this incredible journalist american journalist her name is noor noor taguri and she's a journalist and that's how she identifies herself but she's really struggled against this tendency to label someone without consulting them 
and she she talks of how she was invited to speak at this convention and she was really excited about it because this was an incredible platform she says and she'd have the ears of a lot of really important people but when she got her sort of her pass or her media pass it had the word activist on it which we were saying is a really fantastic label and it's not often a label that you see cast as a negative label and it has positive connotations to it. However, to her, that was so discouraging for her and she does this incredible rant on Instagram and I don't I don't say rant to minimise what she says. I will say she it's a discussion that she has with her viewers about how this label or why this label, should I say, was so discouraging. And she said what I perceived she felt was that this label came from a place of them labelling her based off stereotypes. That how could a woman of colour who wears a hijab be a journalist and be just a journalist? That she must also be an activist. That she's exceeded what is expected of her and her her ilk, if you will, and the group that she belongs to. But to her, she's just a journalist. But she felt like she was othered. When she received that label, she felt truly othered in that moment. And she talks about how others on the panel with her didn't receive that label. They were simply their profession. Yet her, she could not simply be a journalist. She had to be an activist as well. I wanted to ask this question too. Sometimes, I know I would ask it to Christians as well. Mm. I was brought up Catholic, but I now am agnostic to atheist. So sometimes I question religion. Mm-hmm. How do you sometimes reconcile prog- like really progressive values and a religion? Not necessarily being a Muslim but mm-hmm. and, or Islam, but is there something I'm, I'm, I'm missing a lot. Obviously, I'm, I'm asking this question out of uh, ignorance, not trying to question you and, and catch you off guard or anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's I'm so open to. I used to be quite attacking of every do, any dogmatic ideal, whether it's political, religious, or what I perceived as dogmatic. And now I'm so open to so many different areas, and I'm so interested in people's faith and people's interpretation of doctrine of some sort and their upbringing and and all the great things that come of that and that once we go back to labeling people and stereotyping people it's all wrong so maybe the question shouldn't have been how do you reconcile like there is something to reconcile it's my question is how does faith empower you to approach life maybe with values that are stronger than someone without faith or someone without a something that, that at least is is supposed to be bigger than them. How how do you how do, does that work to empower you? I'll say that I don't necessarily believe I have stronger values than those who don't practice a faith. I would never think that. But I think returning to the idea of I perceive my religion as something practiced by humans and the fact that we have a choice in how we practice and I I never f- view faith blindly. I view it critically. 
I am after all an English teacher. So I view it critically and I recognize that I have a choice in how I practice. And I think when you, it's empowering when you think of it that way, the fact that this is something that you buy into and you choose to practice and not just choose to practice, but choose what of it you, you want to practice and align with your already existing values. So I'll say religion doesn't define all my values that I have chosen what from my religion aligns with my values. I've allowed myself to develop my own values and to look to my religion to see what aligns with those values. But I also have values that I've taken that I've taken that aren't from my religion. And as an educator, the values that are needed in my space are not necessarily things that my religion has addressed. So I think it's really, it's the idea that we are humans and there is a choice. And I think that's why a lot of people are resistant or mock those who follow a religion or don't understand. Maybe we won't use the word mock, but they see religion as not having a choice. Whereas to me, it is all about choice. And I think that's that's why religion has persisted as an idea in our society. Brilliant. I love – I learned a lot from that answer. I think that's why it's so fantastic that you have this platform, you've invited me onto this platform in terms of you've allowed me to represent myself And before we spoke about how that's so powerful and how we need to do more of that. And the reason I chose you – I was worried that it would be because you are this walking political statement. Political statement, <laughs> but it's it's not. I've I see you as, and I don't know. Am I, I'm putting labels upon you, but I would consider you someone that would stand up for women's rights for all minority groups. Mm-hmm. You have your own experiences and story and a perspective that I don't get to interact with very often. I think you recognise yourself as an outsider which we were talking about or we've talked about in personal conversations, how everyone is an outsider in some situations. I might be an outsider in terms of globally and politically I've been identified in some situations as an outsider. But what you've done and it's very self-aware is you've recognised what you can't speak on. And it's really important that when we do not have or we're not privy to that the insights of that community, we don't have those lived experiences, we then invite those who do have those lived experiences to talk and we listen. And I'm not necessarily here to change your views to match mine and neither are you. This is purely a dialogue and it's a conversation and that's what we've lost. I feel we change so much more profoundly when we're not trying to convince each other Mm. that we go off and reflect and go, we've had such a great conversation that we connected over putting pressing the record button allows people to perhaps feel connected perhaps just eavesdrop and have a listen but hopefully gain something too what i really wanted this to be was not the my first episode zero of this podcast was talking about who's got the most evidence or who's got the the most persuasive argument to make me win. Mm. And if I came into a conversation as an atheist or as a staunch, I don't know what I'm very staunch about anymore. But Liberal? 
as a staunch <laughs> a liberal, in a, in a a little our liberal, mm-hmm. definitely not a. Though I won't say that because <laughs> I'm trying not to create divides. If I went along and thought, you know, if you don't vote Labor or the Greens, yep. then you are either – and did I say this? I don't know if I said this before, but you're either dumb mm-hmm. or you're either evil. Yeah. You, you, you're one of the you're one or the other, but that is so limiting and that's so bad on my behalf because there are amazing people that – happen to have values that are slightly different than mine on an area that those parties differ on that that I may not and I may not see that so I no longer judge people based on something that they tell me they do or they believe in straight away I want I have to inquire upon that mm. and really ask and and I think you can start judging people when they make decisions when they haven't thought about things yeah. if they just happen I saw this on the news once or twice or three times and now I believe that I've never questioned it. I've never looked. I've never asked. Then you can say, look, or you try to help someone think more critically and actually look and educate. That's why we're educators, I guess. You have to realise that the point of education is to be able to show people that there's more to the story than most of our little window that we see the world through. Not tell and not indoctrinate either. That's yes. not what we're aiming to do. We're trying to teach our students to think critically and not superimpose our viewpoints. We always try to be neutral bodies in the classroom. Yes. And trying to bring that to life. Do you try to do that in life a little bit or do you do you wish it's Outside hard to know. Of the classroom, are you saying? Outside of the classroom, mm-hmm. how do you go about approaching conversation and and these sort of discussions? Maybe not this one because it's quite open, but maybe yeah. others that are a little bit more uh, emotional perhaps. I've always said I will respect your viewpoint until it starts disrespecting my existence. Mm. And that's where I draw the line. But I'm open to viewpoints and allowing people to speak their ideals and their truths without attacking them, which is what we've lost a little bit as a society that it, it seems so fun to attack people. It gets the clicks, it gets the views, but it's not healthy to our existence as humans and our relationships, is it? Are you an optimistic person? That's an interesting question. I've always said, and it's perhaps a cynic's answer, that I'm a realist. Perhaps <laughs> you'd think <laughs> a cynic would say I'm an optimist, but a cynic perhaps doesn't want to identify what they are. Straddle the line, or maybe it's not a cynical answer, maybe it's a lazy answer. But I've always said I'm a realist in terms of I try to look at both sides of an argument and I don't want to immediately jump in with either a positive take or a negative take. I like to sit back and observe and and really get all perspectives and all facts before I can pass judgment, really. So I will say I'm a realist. You're a realist, but – and you almost said the, the cynic's answer of a realist, but that seems to me that you're it's, – it's a bit different. It's almost that you are someone that wants to have the knowledge and the understanding of all sides. A realist to me is someone that says the world is the way it is. Mm. You're not going to change it. You're going to deal with it. At, at times, a realist is like that's the way it is. We're going to deal with the cards we've been dealt and we're going to play the game the way it is. And an optimist – 
is someone that maybe sees the world as ever-changing and anything is possible. And if a negative uh, mindset or a negative doctrine led us into the position we are now or people have taken that and, and profited and have greed and modern society is really based on who can accumulate the most wealth yeah, and accumulate it while ensuring someone else isn't. Mm-hmm. And then they use this word growth to try to say, no, 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 everyone's lifted, yeah. you know, and at times people are, but when you look at inequality, no, no, it's very much the people at the top are really enjoying most of that growth. And is that a capitalist inevitability or is it people that take a good idea and turn it into serious greed that would have happened in any situation? I'm still trying to debate that one myself. An optimist would say, well, if we got ourselves into that position, then we can easily change it. If we change the mindsets of people, if we change the way that the game is played, we put a little bit of the chips into the other uh, on the other side, maybe we'll balance this thing out. Mm-hmm. A realist would say, no, the world's not going to change, so let's take what we can, perhaps. And I don't think that's you. So you're an optimist, okay. in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to put no, words in absolutely. your mouth. Absolutely. You are a person that both feels and listens, but also has a real mindset of, you know, intellect, critical thinking, understanding, and that might make you seem like it takes a bit longer maybe to come up with a conclusion or I'm going to see the world as it is. But if you believe change can occur, that's optimism, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess I am an optimist. <laughs> I didn't want to. I'm <laughs> persuading you. Idiot. <laughs> you know, maybe it's the Capricorn in me, the earth sign in me not wanting to identify myself as an optimist. But when you frame it that way, yeah, I guess I am an optimist. I guess I always just saw a realist as being someone who wants to understand the reality of a situation. I guess that's what I'm picking up on as a realist. But like you said, I I am hopeful and we've talked about the idea of intentions and whether we assume the best of intentions and how I'm trying to work on that more, on assuming that people do have good intentions. And yeah, I guess there are a lot of things about me that do you make me an optimist? I will accept that label is what I'm saying. <laughs> and it gets always changing. I'm yeah. I'm a pessimist a lot of the time, don't you? <laughs> like yeah. so often. And I and you get down on yourself, but it's what actions you take from that mo- those moments of pessimism. Is it mm-hmm. falling away and hiding and, and shying away or radicalizing in some way? Like I could easily have gone down the path of becoming some sort of anarchist that wants to change like completely dis- yeah. dissolve the system then i went down the path of i'll be a realist and and become a politician join a party and just hopefully change little tweaks here and there and just be someone with that you know maybe i'll be a little bit better than the person that would have been there and that's all i can do and now i've got to a point where maybe even more realistic that i'm just a person that may not become anything more than than have the ability to change my little world around me or not even change, just allow a new perspective in. But the optimism always rises in that it's like, well, I will try something. I will give something a go. I will do my best to put my best foot forward and that is bringing along everyone else with me. And I think that's what I want to do. I want to just open doorways. I'm not 
I don't think I'm smart enough necessarily to create a new world. I don't think I'm brave enough to explore new paths. I don't think I'm creative enough to create a new invention. But what I can do is create a community, I feel, or, or bring people along with me in, in a in a leadership sense. But I'm a very equitable leader where I'm not like, listen to me and I'll tell you what to do. But you know what? I've, I've got this great idea. I want to learn to cook i'm going to wait for someone to teach me to cook which is my old way now it's like i'm gonna start cooking Mm. you know or i wish someone would invite me onto a podcast that would be cool oh yeah and (laughs) and i've I've thought about like that (laughs) for so long i'll create one Mm. you know like such simple answers but it took me so long to get them to understand so you have the ability and and you said it it's empowering to have choice and and that Knowing you have choice is what is empowering in life. Marwa, I learned so much today with our discussion. And the takeaway that I bring along with me is to listen and to understand, to not assume, to to let go of your preconceived ideas in any conversation and to know that you're not always right or that someone you really trust doesn't always have the answers, that Mm. you have to actually find answers and you have to find and search for not necessarily truth but a truth. This puzzle that is life, we need to find as many pieces to put together and we're never going to complete the puzzle but we are going to hopefully have a little bit of a picture that we can strive towards in a way. So my final little question to you is, and it's the name of this podcast, it's moments of clarity after this discussion and maybe just in your general day-to-day recently have you had a moment of clarity yes is my short answer and even this this discussion here provides me with a moment of clarity and it's really the idea that you can't ever define yourself if you exist alone that you define yourself in relation to others even through just this dialogue and having a dialogue I've been able to pick apart myself and you've asked me questions I generally didn't consider and it highlights the importance of continuing to have discussions and open discussions and, and being vulnerable with others and how important that is as we go through this journey that is life and will continuously define and redefine ourselves And we're not stuck. Our personalities and our ideas and our ideals are never just stuck in a moment in time. That the more you interact with others and the collective that is this world, the more you understand yourself as an individual. So thank you, obviously, for inviting me to speak on your podcast and for giving me a platform to, to speak my truth. I absolutely had the best time and I appreciate every minute. So thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, please send an email to momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.